Back here, amen. I'm on out there. I can hear myself. So, fantastic. So, what's on everybody's mind? <laughs> it, it has been a, uh, a pretty exciting time. And um, just really thankful to the Lord. You know, when, when uh, Paul asked me to speak, this was several months ago. And then, as many of you know, we had the privilege of being here in September, too. That was unplanned, but uh, that was while uh, Pastor Paul was... Um, recovering from COVID, and so uh, this one's been planned for a long time, and I remember when he booked it, I thought, that's the Wednesday right after the election, and uh, I asked him, I said, you sure you want me to come? I mean, you might need to be up there just really building into the people and encouraging them. Who knows what's going to happen? He said, no, 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 we want you to come, so here we are, and um, you know, I've been regretting my choice all day, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, let me mention a couple of things before we get into uh, what I'd like us to study tonight, and you can be turning to Hebrews chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, so a couple of things, I know we were just here in September, but if you uh, were not here then or missed the opportunity, I have two new books that have come out this year. Um, one of them is a devotional book called Weekly Words of Life. You might want to check that out at our resource table. The other one is a theology book, which is what I really uh, enjoy doing the most, and that is uh, top 10 reasons some people go to hell, and the one reason no one ever has to, and so that's out there as well. Both of those are brand new from this year, and then I was looking over our table, and I thought, man, in light of what's happening, I might want to mention this DVD. I did this in 2018 at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference in Tulsa, so two years ago, a little over two years ago. It was in the spring that year, and I didn't know I was a prophet, but apparently I'm a prophet because that message uh, was called Red, White, and Bad When the Country We Love Becomes the Country We Fear. So anyway, that's uh, very prescient. Um, not sure it's precious, but it's prescient anyway. And I encourage you to pick that up. That's a single DVD. It's also part of a three DVD, three, no, three or four, I can't remember. It'll be out there. DVD set called Globalism, Luciferianism, and the New World Order. So those are out there for you. And then finally, want to mention that I'm going to allow some time at the end here for Q&A. So I hope you'll be kind of thinking as we go through some of this material tonight, jotting down a few questions or maybe making a mental note, uh, because I will try to save some time at the end uh, to field some questions, which I really enjoy that, especially at a church like Candlelight. It's always a real delight to be able to dialogue and iron sharpens iron type of thing. I want to say hello to some uh, folks that might be tuning in from back in Colorado at Plum Creek Chapel. Thank you guys for uh, watching, and uh, that's our home church there. And then also want to mention out at our table on the far end on the right is some material about Cornerstone Bible Institute. And we have really enjoyed interacting with several folks here, I think eight or nine from Candlelight this semester, uh, taking a theology class online. And we're going to be talking with Paul and his team over the next few months about expanding that and maybe offering some additional opportunities for you to further your study in a, in a formal uh, institutional capacity. So uh, if you're interested in learning more about Cornerstone Bible Institute, pick up one of the brochures out there uh, or hit me up at the table. I'd love to dialogue with you a little bit about it. It's a, a small um, Bible college that's been around for about 30 years. I'm privileged to uh, be the president there in South Dakota. And, uh, but we do, we've launched into some online uh, courses now that are available for those um, who are interested. All right, well, let's dive in. 
Hebrews chapter 2. I'm calling this the future world leader. And as I was thinking about this today, you know, I realized that we have a tendency, at least I do, to see life through the lens of our, our current reality in the moment, our current situation. It's very common. It's, uh, it's figuratively, we call that myopia, which is a lack of foresight or a lack of ability to see the big picture, a narrow, narrow view of something. It's a medical term, but we use it often in the sense of uh, figuratively for a lack of you know, ability to see the big picture, myopic. And this certainly is true when it comes to Americans and our perspective uh, known as American exceptionalism. And as we think about these unprecedented times that we're facing now, unprecedented, in many cases unanticipated, um, I thought it might help to, to look beyond the here and the now and to step in through the lens of Scripture to the big picture, to kind of strip away the blinders, step back a bit, and see what is our awesome God doing in, in this world at large. And to kind of help you begin thinking along those lines, I thought I would point out that if you hold to the biblical view of a young earth, which I do, we're roughly 6,000 years of human history, it might interest you to know that in the entirety of human history, the United States of America takes up about 96, you know, or it takes up about 4% of human history. In other words, 96% of human history, America didn't exist. So let's just keep that in mind as we think about here and now. I, I know we live here and now. We live in the United States. These are important times for us, but God is much bigger than what we are facing right now today in November of, of 2020. History um, you know, has seen nations rising and falling many times over the centuries. And every generation, really, somewhere in the world, is facing uh, difficult times in their world, in their nation or in their region of the world. So I got to thinking sort of about some of the big ones in, in, in ancient times. So we could think, for example, of um, you know, the, the Babylonian Empire. You see it in green there on the screen to give you some geographic perspective. That little red section there is roughly uh, Israel or Jerusalem. And so, you know, the Babylonian Empire, which with its you know, leaders, uh, you know, Hammurabi and in, in ancient Babylon and then Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, those are some actual photographs there of those two kings. Um, uh, you know, was trying to dominate the world, at least in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, some 600 years before uh, Christ. And then we could move into, say, the time of Persia, modern-day Iran. Everything you see in pink on there is Persia. Again, here's just for some perspective, that's Israel, roughly. Um, so, you know, you've got guys like Cyrus the Great or Darius the First and others trying to dominate the world and take over the world. And then, of course, uh, who can forget the Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great expanding the territories of the world empire at that time, one of the most notable rulers uh, in the empire. There's uh, Israel or Jerusalem again to give you some perspective as he spread it to the east. And there's... Um, Again, uh, 
a shot of um, Alexander the Great. And then we could, we could think of the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, uh, at its height, everything you see there uh, in red. And there are a lot of different Roman emperors. There's Jerusalem uh, through the years. Uh, for example, you could think of Caligula, um, famously saying, let them hate so long as they fear in his reign of terror. Now that's Augustus. Here's the Caligula. Neither one of them is particularly handsome chaps. Uh, there's Nero. And Nero's interesting here because he's the one that is ruling the world, at least the Roman Empire, at the time that Hebrews was written. And so as we kind of think about this time, he ruled from 54 to 68 A.D. Hebrews was written roughly late 60s, 67. Some people say 68 in that time frame. Um, this is the, the persecution that those early Jewish believers were facing. So through the centuries, there's been no shortage of leaders who have tried to dominate the earth by expanding their kingdoms. So those are some of the ancient ones in biblical history up through the time of Christ. But let's take a further journey through more recent times. We could look in the Middle Ages to Genghis Khan, the founder of the Mongol Empire, uh, who was known for the wholesale slaughter of his conquests. He had the largest contiguous empire in history. There was Henry VIII, the king of England, uh, who had 70,000 people put to death, including two of his own wives in the 16th century. Uh, then there's Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia, who doubled the territory of Russia. He boiled his victims to death, and again in the 16th century. By the way, Ivan IV here pronounced his first death sentence at age 13. Um, he had an incredible imagination, would, would come up with all kinds of painful uh, deaths. Impaling was one of them. Maximilian Robespierre's reign of terror, uh, one of the most influential figures of the French Revolution in the late 18th century. He killed some 40,000 people and created the Committee of Public Safety. <laughs> it was a pretext for, for tyranny, for control and cruelty. And then, of course, we come into the 20th century, Joseph Stalin with his gulag system. His history suggests he killed some 20 million people. But a great uh, researcher... Uh, Robert Conquest has shown pretty definitively that that number is really more like 43 million people. 43 million people. Um, another way of looking at this is that the annual risk of a person under Soviet control being murdered by Stalin's regime was 1 out of 222. Anyone dying during World War I was one out of 5,556 by comparison. Uh, today, anyone dying from cancer is one out of 357. So you had a greater chance of dying under Stalin's regime than you do of dying of cancer today. Chance of an American dying in a car accident is one out of 4,000. But back in Stalin's day, you had a one out of 222 chance of dying. And then we move into World War II with, of course, the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, with his Gestapo and secret police state concentration camps, killed 11 million 
a people. And then uh, the president of Chile, Augusto Pinochet. Um, I, I talk about this by the, this particular case in my book, Great Last Day's Deception. I don't remember which chapter it is, but I introduced the chapter by going into some background information about this. It's very, very interesting how he actually came to power. Um, uh, he had mass arrests, trials, torture. He, he sort of popularized, that's probably not the best word, but the, the notion of disappearances, you know, which is very commonplace now in tyrannical thought. Pol Pot's killing fields, he killed one quarter of his own country's pop- population in the 1970s. Um, of course, King Jung, Kim Jong-il, the dear leader, and now uh, his son, Kim Jong-un, um, instituted re-education camps, torture, forced labor, infanticide, forced abortions. In fact, studies show that since time began, governments and world leaders have killed 262 million people, actually in the last 100 years alone. But since time began, tyranny is nothing new. Tyranny is absolutely nothing new. We've been very blessed for 244 years of history in our great nation to largely experience freedom, freedom to do just what we're doing here tonight, gathering together to open the Word of God and pray and seek the Lord's guidance and unashamedly have the Scriptures open on our lap, right? Um, But we've got to be careful about this sort of perspective that fails to recognize that as discouraging as things might seem right now in the trajectory of our country, when you step back, many nations have faced far more dire situations than, than we may feel that we're facing. So when you come to Hebrews chapter 2, these were early Christian Jews. So these were Jews who had gotten saved, many of them, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now, this was 30 years later. The church was 30 years old. Obviously, there had been great evangelistic harvest. The church was spreading to the west, and there were many other believers. So not all of these believers that the writer is writing to had been saved for three decades, but many of them had, and then many others had been saved in more recent times. But they were Christians who, by faith, trusted in Jesus Christ, believed the gospel, and left Judaism to become part of the way, Christianity. And by the time you get to the 67, 68, 69 time frame of that first century, Nero was losing his mind and was beginning to torture, arrest, persecute Christians in many ways. Christians have always been persecuted from the early days of the church. We could think about Acts chapter 7 and Stephen and how Saul, before he came to be a believer, was consenting to his death. But it was really heightening, so much so that many believers in the, this time frame, were actually feeling like they had no choice but to abandon Christianity and revert back to Judaism. And we don't want to be too harsh toward them for that type of thinking because uh, you know, until you've walked a mile in their shoes, we don't know what we would do. I mean, I hope that all of us in this room, if it came down to it, would confidently proclaim Jesus is my Lord, regardless of the consequence, Right? But, you know, we haven't been there. And uh, what if they put a gun to your wife's head and said, deny the Lord or else? 
What if they put a gun to your child's head? Deny the Lord or else. I mean, we don't want to be too harsh, but uh, many of these people were forsaking the assemblings of themselves together because they didn't want to be identified with Christianity lest they be hauled into jail or worse. And so it's in this context that the Lord, that the Spirit of God inspires the writer of Hebrews to come along and write this, what we now have as 13 chapters, to really challenge that early group of believers facing really unprecedented times and dangerous times and difficult times and discouraging times and trying times to hang on to the faith. Trust God in trying times. None of this surprised God, he says. God is still on the throne. God still has a plan. And persecution is no reason to turn away from the Christ who saved you with His own shed blood. Amen. I mean, we might summarize really the, the overall teaching of Hebrews is, you know, trusting God in trying times. Keep the faith. When you get to chapter 2, as we sort of narrow in uh, to these five verses... It's really a challenge to the readers and by extension to us today to look forward, to look beyond the moment to a better day that is coming. And the writer reminds the readers that the Jesus who shed His own blood to rescue us from the penalty of sin is also the same Jesus who's preparing to rule a future earthly kingdom that will be unprecedented in its righteousness, fairness, glory, and peace. God has a plan. A better day is coming. So don't abandon your faith in the one who will make all things new and right someday. Don't forfeit the blessings of rewards and uh, the blessings of righteousness even now. Stick with Jesus. And so throughout the Hebrews, the writer uses a combination of theological argumentation, appealing back to many Old Testament passages to show that the, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow, a foretaste of things to come in Christ, that Christ is the, the substance of all that that pointed forward to, the shadow in the Old Testament. So theological argumentation, encouragement, exhortation, and some warnings. There are five famous warning passages in the book of Hebrews. All of this to encourage us to hold fast, stand firm, don't be discouraged. We serve a mighty God who's in full control. Amen? So to give you the lead up in terms of the context, in chapter 1, the writer starts out by making a positive argument that Jesus is the best. Remember, he talks about Uh, He jumps right in at the beginning of chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So chapter 1 is all about Jesus' superiority. He's superior to angels. He's going to go on throughout the letter and in, in, in chapter 2 also, and 3 and 4, talk about how He's better than the other priests of, of Aaron and Melchizedek. He's, he's better than anything Judaism has to offer. 
He is the consummation of all things. And He saved them. Now, they knew He saved them. They were believers. And they understood that they had been freed from the penalty of sin because of the shed blood of Christ, their Savior. But what they were doing is so obsessed and focused and discouraged about the here and the now that they were forgetting the glory and the wonder of our salvation in Christ and the future that awaits us. And so they were making poor decisions based upon circumstances instead of walking by faith. Then in the first part of chapter 2, in the immediate context of what we're looking at tonight, uh, he issues a warning. And he says, don't forsake so great salvation that you have in Christ. And then we come to this key passage, which is one of my favorite passages in the book of Hebrews. This short little five verses. People skip over it. They miss it. They don't understand its significance in the overall argument of Hebrews, but it is the key. And that's because the writer talks about Jesus Christ as the future world leader, the consummation of the kingdom someday. He sets before us a reason for our hope, a reason to hang on to our faith, a reason to stick with Jesus. He talks about this new world to come that will make this present world with all of its sufferings and inequities and inexplicable things that are happening pale in comparison. So these folks needed a morale boost. They were considering returning to the safe haven of Judaism that was still in cahoots with Rome abandoning their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they needed a reminder, a strong exhortation to continue steadfast in the faith. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It may well have been Paul. I tend to lean that way, but we honestly can't say for sure. But whoever the author is in this little section, I think he gives us three aspects of this new world to come, which is our hope. Right? So we understand, I know this group understands, that we are living in the present church age, which is a mystery. Uh, it's an intercalation, a break in God's plan of the ages uh, that started on the day of Pentecost and will end at the rapture when we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We don't know when that's going to happen, but at some point uh, we're going to be called home to be rescued from this present evil age. And then after that, the end times kick in, and uh, it rapidly begins to unfurl these, this final cosmic struggle between good and evil as Satan indwells a man known as the Antichrist, the beast, the man of sin, the son of perdition, uh, and he rules the world. And we are promised uh, unequivocally that as the bride of Christ, we will not be here during that time of the great outpouring of God's wrath and this climactic struggle between the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan leading up to the battle of Armageddon. We'll be in heaven. But make no mistake, that does not mean in any way that Christians might not have to suffer incredible persecution prior to the official 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation period. Indeed, many believers, as I've just sort of shown, have been suffering unspeakable persecution throughout the 2,000 years of church history. And right now, this day, this very night, as we sit here and eat our casserole and sit in comfort with the comfortable seats and the lights and, and read you know, one of six or eight Bibles that we have at home and, and, and with our smartphones and our PowerPoint and just try to worship the Lord, right this very moment there are believers locked in prison cells and 
suffering and being tortured and dying. How many Christians died today because of their faith, right? So don't let anyone tell you that those of us who understand the Bible to teach a pre-tribulational rapture are so somehow suggesting that we're going to be out of here before it gets too bad. <laughs> it's too bad for a lot of people right now. And based on things that may be happening uh, in rapid succession, if the Lord tarries His coming, we may all have to face that. And even if we don't, and we pray and should pray that we don't, we pray that God's not through with our country. We pray that He gives us more time to spread the gospel and raise our children and grandchildren. But either way, we ought to walk by faith and trust in an almighty God. And, and seeing the big picture and understanding the argument here that the writer of Hebrews is making in a very similar time, I mean, in a manner of speaking, obviously by God's grace we're not facing persecution or being burned at the stake like many, were, many believers were in Nero's day, but Nevertheless, it's, a, it's an unsettling time, right? And uh, so we need to walk by faith. So just three quick aspects in these short five verses of this future world leader and the world to come. First of all, we see the new world horizon. The first thing the writer wanted his readers and us to understand is that the world the Bible speaks of, the new world the Bible speaks of, is yet future. It's not here yet. Life is not about the here and the now, it's about the then and the there. See, we become so consumed with the now that we forget where it's all heading, that it's all part of a purpose, all part of a plan. And, and that's not hard to do. We all, we all become consumed with the stresses of life. But, you know, one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So that means one-sixth of the Bible... Um, is, is awaits fulfillment. And so we become obsessed with the five-sixths of the Bible, you know, how to serve the Lord, how to raise your family, how to do church, you know, how to this and that and walk wisely and redeem the time, all that stuff, which is, it's in here. But we need to sometimes step back and look at that one-sixth and say, God, I confess my lack of faith and I want to remind, be reminded of what you're doing in this world. So the writer begins by saying, for, you know, what's the context here? He's reminding them not to neglect their salvation, not to abandon the faith, but to stick with Jesus, stick with the one who saved them. Why? Because he has not put the world to come of which we speak. Now you ought to underline that in your Bible because that's the entire key to understanding the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is, is challenging the readers in light of the world to come. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you're facing a pretty dark world, why wouldn't you want to be reminded of the world to come? There was very little in that time and in that moment that anyone could point to and say, hey, aren't you glad to be alive? <laughs> aren't you glad things are going so great? Isn't this a wonderful time to be alive as cousins and aunts and uncles and children were hauled off by Nero's reign of terror? He's not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. You know, just three years before Hebrews was written, the Apostle Peter had pointed out to his readers this new world that's on the horizon. He said, nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which, in which righteousness dwells. 
Hallelujah. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Christ, described the first thousand years of this new world that's on the horizon this way. He said, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. He says, The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Watch this. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and a weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Now, this is an amazing picture here of what life's going to be like when the King of kings and Lord of lords and Prince of peace takes the throne. And it's, it's a metaphor, but it's also a literal description of this time in the future millennial phase of the kingdom when there will be no inequities like we have so much of today. I mean, just imagine, you know, imagine, imagine uh, you know, Wendy and I are, are watching our 14-month-old granddaughter, and uh, it's just us, and uh, let's say I'm outside and Wendy's, I mean, I'm inside and Wendy's outside with the baby. And um, I holler, hey, Wendy, can you come here for a second? And she goes, ah, sure, I'll be right there. Hold on, let me just set our little granddaughter down here by this viper's den and let her play for a moment. I'll be right there. And then she, it's just unbelievable to even think about, right? And yet that's the picture that Isaiah paints. Why? Because he says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the picture of the inauguration of this covenant program of God when everyone will know of the Lord from the least to the greatest. Why? Because he's sitting on the throne ruling in Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple over a global kingdom in peace and righteousness and justice. So the Apostle Paul makes the same argument. Notice the future tense here when he says in Romans, and I know you guys are studying Romans, I think, right now, the creation itself also will be delivered. Not yet. It's not delivered yet, right? From the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And, you know, let's just be honest. There's been a lot of groaning today. And we need to look to the new world that's on the horizon as a reminder that none of this surprises. You know, God did not look down. God's not looking down at the moment because I, don't, I haven't checked lately. I assume it's still officially uncalled. But God's not looking down from heaven saying, boy, I can't wait to see who wins. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, God is sovereign. So when will this happen? When will this new world that's on the horizon come? Um, I addressed this several weeks ago. I do a weekly devotional, a weekly, uh, yeah, devotional. And these eventually have, many of them made it into our devotional book. Uh, but if you're interested in reading these, you can just go to our website, notbyworks.org, and click on the blog, and there's a whole backlog of them there. But every, every week it comes out, usually on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, you can actually sign up for the RSS feed and be notified when they come out. But I did one a few weeks ago entitled, Seasons Come and Seasons Go. 
And I looked at Ezekiel, the prophet, the post-exilic prophet in Ezekiel 34. Um, you know much about Ezekiel? Do you remember the story there? He was a prophet to Israel during their time in Babylon. He prophesied for some 22 years from uh, uh, 593 to roughly 570 B.C. And during his ministry, he, of course, foretold of a time. He has some great New Covenant passages in there and some great uh, you know, pictures of the coming king, uh, millennial temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And we learn a lot in here about future times that, that when, when we're going to see get the, all things made new. Uh, but he talks about Israel's ultimate restoration when the King of Kings, the Messiah, comes back and establishes His earthly kingdom. And when He comes, He's going to reign over the whole earth. God's holy hill, Jerusalem, will be His capital city. And it will be a time of global righteousness and justice never before seen on the earth. And wouldn't you like to know when all of this is going to come to pass? The exilic community in Israel certainly wanted to know. When will the suffering and the heartache that span the globe give way to joy and blessing? And look at what Ezekiel says when it will happen. I will make them the places all around my hill and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will call showers to come down in their season. In their season, right? And then he says, there shall be showers of blessing. It's been nearly 2,500 years since Ezekiel. Uh, and his prophecy, we're still waiting for it to be fulfilled. In 1883, Daniel Webster Whittle wrote the following hymn based on this passage. There shall be showers of blessing. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing. Sent from the Savior above. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers we plead. How many of you need showers of blessing? Amen. But you know when they're going to come? In their season. In their season. So, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, like the post-exilic community of Israel, like the first century Jewish believers who were facing persecution, the disciples had some questions about, when is this going to come, Lord? When's your kingdom going to come? On the Mount of Ascension. And what did Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Remember, God knows even when we don't. I mean, I've, I've studied this stuff for years and years and years, written about it, done conferences about it, uh, feel fairly conversant about the Luciferian agenda and, and this cosmic struggle between good and evil. I can't, I can't tell you how this all fits into the plan. It'd be crazy to try to guess. But I know someone who does know, and I'm going to trust him. If I trusted him with my eternal destiny and the forgiveness of my sin and eternal life, doesn't it make sense to trust him with little earthly things like what's going on in a country, especially a country where 96% of human history has never even heard of it, <laughs> right? Peter echoes this thought, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Paul echoes this thought in 1 Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes like a thief in the night. We don't know when the seasons are going to change. Uh, 
and the eastern sky is going to split and the kingdom will come. And how we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus in our day. That would be so great. I would love that if that happened. But what we do know about this new world that's on the horizon is that unlike all of those other world leaders that I surveyed at the beginning of this message, all those others in ancient times and even more modern times who've sought to take over the world and expand their tyranny, when Christ comes, it won't be partial. It'll be complete. He will be king over the whole earth. Everything will be in subjection to Him. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now that's talking about the second coming to inaugurate the kingdom, but we know biblically when we piece together the mystery of the church with God's timetable for Israel that we're going to be rescued before that and we'll be coming back with Him to inaugurate the kingdom and rule and reign with Him in positions of authority. So the new world is on the horizon. But then he goes on to talk about the leader of this new world to come. So we see not only the new world horizon, but the new world leader. The new world leader. And he's going to quote here from Psalm chapter uh, 8. Uh, and he's, this is David. He says, One testified in a certain place. That's David. right? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you take care of him. In the original context, David is talking about mankind in general, but the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, then interprets this and applies it to Jesus Christ, who by this time, the name Son of Man, first comes up in Daniel and has now become a messianic title for Jesus Christ Himself. And so he then reads Psalm 8 through the lens of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And he says, you have made him, going on still quoting from Psalm 8 here, a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you've set him over the work of your hands. And um, then he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. It's a powerful statement of this new world leader that is to come. And these people that the writer was under the inspiration of the Spirit addressing this letter to, we're considering abandoning Jesus, who he's trying to tell him here is none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one to whom all things are subject one day. And I mean, by comparison, it's like Nero and then the Lord Jesus. I mean, get your priorities straight, right? <laughs> I think you can make the connection without me putting names to it, right? The Lord Jesus and Nero, okay? Nero, you with me? Because I promised myself I'm not going to mention names tonight. Right? But you see the point. Jesus Christ is the one who's ruling. He says in Revelation, I love this, when He comes back, He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the way the text reads and highlights it in capitalization there. I didn't make it capital. Because this is a pivotal moment when He comes back on the Mount of Olives. And He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. So there's a, a new world leader. So we've seen the new world horizon and the new world leader. But then He closes out with the new world order. <laughs> now, you know I love to talk about the new world order. But what is the new world order, really? 
Satan has his new world order, but Satan's no match. He's already been dealt the fatal blow. The new world order that's coming, the one that's on the horizon, the one that this future leader, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, will preside over, is quite different, as we're going to see here in these last two verses. But I wanted to interject that if you're interested in studying this notion of the New World Order in real time relative to what's unfolding before us, particularly here in the West, and overlaying that with Scripture and the setting of the stage for what might be coming, then I would highly recommend this series that I'm in the midst of on uh, YouTube called Spirit of the Antichrist. Last week I did part 14 of this. They're all there. and where I talked about the spirit of power. And just today, I dropped the most recent one called the spirit of power, global surveillance and the police state. And uh, so really interesting, uh, you know, stuff there where I take scripture and overlay it to modern current events. So you can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash notbyworks, and you'll see the spirit of the Antichrist playlist there. And if you subscribe and click the little bell, then every week as I add to this. We're, I'm looking at it being about 20 sessions before I'm all said and done, and then we'll move on to something else, but 15 of them are already there. Uh, so check that out at our YouTube channel, and uh, we're almost ready here at, by the time, in the next few minutes here for the Q&A, so if you want to just be ready for that. But, um, but we see this new world order. No, notice how the writer explains what he meant when he said that all things are in subjection under the feet of Christ. He's going to actually clarify that because I don't know about you, but when I read that and I look around me, I'm like, what do you mean all things are in subjection to him? I can name one or two that don't appear to be in subjection to him. And certainly his original audience in the 60s AD would have thought the same thing. So he explains it. He says, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he goes on to say, he left nothing. He explains what all is. All means all, in other words, just in case you were wondering. He clarifies, he left nothing that is not put under him. So all means all, but not only does he clarify the meaning of all, he then goes on to say, but, and that's a huge contrastive word there in the flow of thought. It's like it jumps off the page. And anyone reading this, especially in their first century context, which again was far more severe than what we're facing, but yet equal to what many believers are facing today and have faced for 2,000 years. So as they're reading about this future world leader and the new world that's on the horizon and the, you know, the, this new world that's awaiting out there and the leader of it, and, 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 and they're reading all about this, how everything's in subjection to him, they're going they're just the, the tension is building and the confusion and the sort of the perplexity in their mind is going, what are you talking about? And then boom, he makes he anticipates what everyone's thinking is, but we don't yet see all things put under him. We don't yet see that. It was self-evident to those first century Jewish Christians who were facing persecution under Nero that all things were not yet put under Christ's authority from a practical perspective, wasn't it? And it should be self-evident to us. I mean, anyone who suggests that we're living in the kingdom today, that the church has somehow replaced Israel in God's plan and that the kingdom is now and that what we are experiencing is the fulfillment of all of God's kingdom promises throughout Scripture, 
is utterly blind to reality. You know, as I go through in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, the world is under the sway of the wicked one right now. The devil is the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. But here's the point. It will not always be that way. It won't be. And that's the writer's whole thrust of his argument. Stick with Jesus. Because the future world leader will throw off the shackles of Rome and the revived Roman Empire and usher in a long-awaited kingdom on earth. He goes on to explain in the last verse in this little section, we see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. In other words, God has a plan. There is a new world order coming. But part of that plan involved suffering. Jesus had to suffer death before He could take the throne. I mean, as you, as you think about your life story and each of the various chapters in your life, you, you realize instinctively that life has joy and heartache. It has victory and defeat. Every life does. And as we read through Hebrews, the writer wants us to remember that nothing we've ever faced or ever will face can compare to the agony that our Savior suffered some 2,000 years ago. He's been there. He can relate. Jesus knows that the cross must come before the crown. Humility before honor. Tragedy before triumph. Sacrifice before celebration. Atonement before attainment. Suffering before success. I could go on, but... I got tired of pulling out my thesaurus. But, but that's, a, that's a principle for life. Humility before honor. So you want order? You want justice? You want righteousness and peace? It's not going to happen until the future world leader, Jesus Christ, who came as a Lamb of God to take away the sin of, world, of the world, and will return as the victorious, mighty King who treads the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God, the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And that's what the picture Revelation paints. Out of His mouth goes a sharp sword when He comes back that He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You know that phrase, rod of iron, there? That speaks of order, unprecedented order. The new world order will come. It's going to come. First at the hands of the Luciferians and the Antichrist, but ultimately under the feet of Jesus. And when it comes, oh, what a glorious day that will be. But we've got to make sure that you have received the free gift of eternal life by faith because even though we look down the horizon at the new world on the horizon with its new world leader and the new world order of complete justice that's going to happen, we don't know the Lord's timetable. It's not for us to know the times and the seasons. And there's an urgency here building because even long before we see the stage being set for this climax of this you know, battle that's going on, 
we've been, we, we know from the testimony of Scripture and from our own life that life is but a vapor. We're not promised tomorrow. And so let me encourage you tonight. I know this is, you know, Wednesday night Bible study, and so probably most of you have had a moment in your life where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But, you know, this uh, candlelight live streams, and so there's at any time people that may be watching, and it's also recorded, and so people through the years may watch. And I just want people to understand, as we wait for the future world leader, we need to make sure we've got our house in order. And that's a simple matter of trusting Christ. The Bible is clear that you cannot get into heaven apart from being perfect, 100% perfect. You have to be 100% obedient to 100% of God's law 100% of the time. That's what the Bible says. Jesus himself said, unless you're perfect, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. And yet we all know that every one of us has slipped up at least once. And so the only way we can be perfect is to have the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us. And the way we receive that gift is by faith. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We trust in Christ, we're declared righteous, and therefore we meet the standard. Not because of anything we've done or could do, but because of what He did, Jesus Christ. So if you've not trusted Him tonight, don't leave here without simply placing your faith in Christ. It's a simple equation. You don't have to walk an aisle or sign a card or, or raise a hand or do a dance or be dunked underwater. or any, You don't have to do anything. It's a simple matter of trusting in Christ. Even right now while I'm talking, you can say, who am I trusting in to forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life? If your trust is in anything other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then you've not been saved. And you can do that right now simply by trusting in Christ. We go back to verse 5 where it all started. It's about the world to come. The world to come. He has not put that world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels or demons or any other world tyrant or anyone else. He's put it in subjection to Jesus. The new world is on the horizon. It's coming. It'll be led by Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who saved us from the penalty of sin when He died and rose again. And that new world order will be a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice. So what's the takeaway? Don't be discouraged. A better day is coming. Amen. 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 Okay, well, we've got some good time here for some questions, comments, thoughts, some dialogue, and I hope that you've got some thoughts and questions, and I would very much love to, uh, to, to answer them or at least to give it my best shot. Back over here. Wait for the microphone because I'm practically deaf. I really love the remark about humility has to come first. And I was reading Andrew Murray, and it opened up to that. And he was saying the real test is if we really um, are humble before the Lord isn't what we do just at home or at church. It's how we treat those around us. Yeah. <laughs> are we a servant? I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so, that's a good point yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, humility and character are, are more about what you're doing. Nobody's looking. Yeah. Somebody else. Uh, right up here. Earlier you were talking about all these tyrants that were murdering people and stuff like that. And in Romans 1 it says that God has given them up 
like three times in 10 verses. And yeah. then in second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 10, he says he's given them up also. Well, we see some of the crazy stuff that's going on right now. There was a newscaster saying these have been mostly peaceful protests. And in the background, the, the city's <laughs> on fire, you know? Yeah. So it's I like, mean, it just seems like they've been given up to some crazy thinking. What is your thoughts about that? Yeah, I definitely think it's like we're living in the twilight zone. I mean, it really is uh, in so many ways. But you're right. I mean, it's like a complete, utter reversal of reality, you know? Um, and we see it in so many different ways. Um, and, uh, but I definitely think that's a sign of the times. You know, I feel like in this cosmic struggle, and I've written and talked about this in several of our, of our DVDs, but you know, Satan has been trying to conquer this domain, the earth, ever since he got kicked out of heaven. And so you go back to Genesis where the battle began, and you see some fundamental building blocks of God's creation. Remember, God spoke the world into existence. He created time, space, and matter. And we now live in what is now 6,000 years so far of human uh, history. And uh, at, that, at the beginning, we see some sort of key building blocks of life, like life itself, language, because God spoke the world into existence. Gender, uh, male and female, He created them in His image. In our, let us create man in our image, He said, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And it seems like all of these key components Satan has attacked He's attacked life with, you know, things like the eugenics program that goes way back and is still very prevalent uh, today. Our government still has a population control office that we pay for with our tax dollars that used to be the eugenics office and abortion and euthanasia and all kinds of, you know, other things that have come back to our attention in recent times because of the whole discussion of vaccines. He's attacked language with the deconstruction of language and political correctness, and you can no longer say certain things in the free press or on YouTube or on Facebook because they get to determine what you say. And then he's attacked gender with the gender surrender movement. And, and, and you know, I think we just elected somewhere, I don't remember where, but our first transgender representative in Congress. Uh, proud to be an American, right? But, uh, you know, so yeah, all of these things are under attack. And I, I just have to believe it can't be much longer. Again, I don't have the mind of God and I'm not a date setter, but it just seems like we've got to be getting close. Yeah. So somebody else, yeah. Well, with your holy crystal ball, <laughs> if things go awry and follow through with um, what Pastor Paul said, and that is that we would be blessed with grace and mercy if Donald Trump was elected, but we deserve, the country deserves Joe Biden et al. Mm -hmm. So let's say that we get our comeuppance. What do you see coming up in the future? So I absolutely love what Pastor Paul said. Um, when you first said Paul, of course, my mind went to the Apostle Paul. Then I'm trying to think of a verse that said Trump and Biden, and I couldn't, couldn't think. No, oh, he's talking about Pastor Paul on Sunday. Okay. So it took me a minute to catch up with you. But I loved it. I love what he said about how, you know, God is, you know, God of grace and mercy. And if, if one thing happens, it's grace, but another it's judgment. So what I would say is, first of all, let me, let me take a moment to kind of give an exhortation before I give a speculation. <laughs> okay. My exhortation that the Lord's been really putting on my heart today is believers need to stop 
obsessing over a man or a party or a country or a political system and get back to a wholehearted devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and walk by faith. Right? Absolutely. And I believe if we do that, if we do that, it's no telling how much revival can happen. I'm not just a, a doomsdayer like so many of the, you know, prophecy teachers on TV that just have a constant drip feed of dread trying to get you to buy their products or whatever. I believe I'm an optimistic guy. I don't want things to end. I want to see my granddaughter grow up, right? So I believe that there's absolutely still time for revival to break out in America and worldwide, and we need to get back to the basics. But if I had to speculate, Again, as I was saying over here, that I just feel like the stage is being set for some pretty rough times. And short of a, a Spirit-led revival, which is what we all pray for, and we can see that happen if we'll get right between us and the Lord and turn off the TV and open our Bibles. Uh, then, but short of that, I, I really think we, if the Lord tarries us coming, we could be in for some rough times. And uh, so... Um, but that's something that, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Somebody else. Yeah. Back here, and then we'll come up here. Um, so <clears throat> I actually wanted to comment a little bit what you already said on, <clears throat> on that, because when I was reading earlier about the parables, and it says to occupy until he comes, and occupying is stirring ourselves up and believing him that even... Even now, you know, it's not over. This, this isn't over. We have another two weeks where we are just going to believe God and speak his word and, and, and see even our nation turn around. Uh, as believers, it says that, you know, that he leads us in triumph with that aroma um, out to the others. And if we can see our city and our, our state and our country saved, just a, a great awakening, the, just even... Um, right before the, uh, um, <clears throat> basically, when the founding fathers were even writing the document that we, that they were facing hard times. And yet, as we, as we stir ourselves up in the spirit and we speak in love and speak with hope and, and believe God for the impossible, that we can, we can see these things. Just as you said, that there can be another great awakening, but it takes us opening our mouths and takes us to, to stir ourselves up and say, this, is, this doesn't have to be the end right now. And even if it is, I'm going to go out in a fire. I'm going to go out with fighting, sure. right? That we can be stirred up. Amen, yeah. And, you know, let's remember, it, it, uh, you're right. Officially, I guess we don't really know what's going to happen. But I think I would just caution and challenge and encourage believers everywhere to... Get in the Word and make it about the Lord and stop worrying about men and systems and courtrooms and lawyers and cheaters and non-cheaters and counters and chads and all this stuff. I mean, if we continue to obsess over that stuff, I really, again, I'm not a prophet, but I really think God's going to say, okay, I mean, how long will I put up with this, you know, perverse generation who's going to just think that we can change the world at the ballot box, you know? Uh, I said to someone the other day, I mean, we got six to three uh, confer, you know, conservatives on the Supreme Court. So I guarantee you we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, right? Right? I mean, if 20 years ago, if you'd have talked to any Christian leader in this country and you'd have said, if we could get six 
Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices and outnumber the court six to three, do you think we would be able to stop Roe v. Wade and stop LGBTQ and stop all of these socialistic treatments? Everybody would have said, absolutely. Well, now we got it. When are we going to start trusting in God and stop trusting in a man-made system? Uh, I think it's, but, I, but I, I'm optimistic. I believe we will. And I believe, if nothing else, this, um, this unexpected, in some people's opinion, uh, perspective of, or, or outcome uh, is, is shaking people back into reality. That's my thought. So someone else up here, right here, had a question. And then, and then it may be back there after this. Um, my thought and question is kind of in the same vein of what she had just said. But um, my thoughts right now on what's going on and kind of questions in my mind, and I asked Paul about this a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday, but um, I wanted to know your thoughts too. Um, it's kind of a similar question. When you talk about leaders who are tyrants and um, you know the murdering of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, or if you think about our founding fathers and their rebellion against the tyranny of England, um, what do you see or feel is the biblical standpoint of those kinds of rebellions that have fought against you know mass genocides or yeah. um, preserving freedom, life, liberty, et cetera. Yeah. So your question really touches on the fundamental issue of civil disobedience and... Yeah, and, and you yeah. know, where does it, is it okay to cross the line of civility? <laughs> yeah. So I get into that extensively in, in uh, uh, Red, White, and Bad, When the Country We Love Becomes the Country We Fear. Again, I wasn't anticipating this... I was just reading the signs and recognizing that if the Lord tarries is coming, unless revival breaks out, we could be facing this. And so I wanted to get into it. So I got into Romans 13 and just dealt with the biblical principles of, you know, how, what governs us. And uh, so, it, it's, it, you know, I would highly recommend that for further study. But the short answer is we must obey God, not man. And that does not, it's oversimplification for some uh, Bible teachers who suggest that Quote, unless the government is mandating sin, you must obey them. I think that's an oversimplification. Mm -hmm. The biblical text doesn't lead me there. The biblical text leads me to the motives, the purpose behind the government. And there are things that the Chinese government does or the Iranian government does or other closed countries does that are not in and of themselves requiring you to sin. But are you obligated to obey those leaders who are not serving for God. So it's more a question of what are these government leaders, and I'm speaking in philosophical general terms, and I'm not thinking about just America or whatever, I'm just trying to answer the question biblically. Uh, what, what is their ultimate end game? What is their goal? What are, why are they doing what they're trying to do? And, you know, we, that's a, you use the phrase a line in the sand. You know, I really think every believer needs to be thinking about what lines they will or will not cross because, again, it's possible that very soon we may all be facing some decisions about what lines, you know, we're going to cross depending on what new rules and regulations and uh, things come down. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a broader question that can be answered simply because there's some complexities to it. Um, 
I think we have that disc. We just haven't listened to it yet. We, yeah. <laughs> we bought it last time you were here. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would, uh, but I would say the, the overarching principle is we are to obey God first, man second. So, and then was there a question back here? Yeah. Um, I know that, um, well, our child, she's a, a very young teenager. and I'm sorry, I, I'm oh. half deaf. Did I turn on? Okay. Our child's kind of a young teenager. She's 13, and she's been really appalled at people who are professing Christians that she really loves and respects. And um, she can't understand how they could vote for a party that is in line with abortion and in line with all these other things that are really abhorrent to God. So she couldn't understand, like, then they can't be a Christian. They're, you know, she had a, someone else that she had talked to that was thinking that um, abortion was okay, and we're trying to tell her, like, you can't tell people they're going to hell. That's just not going to motivate them. Right. But how do you explain this, would you say? Because it is troubling that many people who are professing Christians and genuinely are Christians um, see politics differently. They don't... Sh- they don't look at it morally or biblically when they come to a vote. So how would you explain that? Because um, I think in general, there's been sort of a struggle. As there's, this particular election, I think, has been a, a much harder line between sides than you've ever seen before. And even the young people are seeing it. I mean, children. <laughs> yeah. So how would you answer that? Yeah, it's really, man, it's discouraging, isn't it? Because we are more divided than ever before. Um, on so many issues. It's so polarized. Um, You know, I would say, I would start out by just trying to say, look, um, every believer, every believer has inconsistencies in our worldview. We just do. Let's be honest, right? We all hold beliefs that we have put together in this big amalgamation of beliefs, this web of interrelated beliefs inside our brain that are influenced by something we learned from our parents, something we learned in school, a person we heard on TV, a book we read, our favorite you know, TV commentator, uh, the Bible, our pastor, our Sunday school teacher. And, and if we're really honest, if we really looked, could peel back our scalp and look down in it, we would see all kinds of inconsistencies. So I, I, would, I would affirm what this youngster is observing and say, look, you know what? Guilty as charged. There are believers who hold beliefs and, that are contrary to Scripture, and, and, and there are believers who might have the right belief, such as pro-life, but they act inconsistent with that belief. And the goal is to bring all of our thoughts into conformity to Christ and captive and, and be consistent. And, uh, and so as far as a solution, I think it gets back to uh, people once again getting back to the Word and stop putting more credence in all of these, you know, commentators. I mean, I, I know people that can that that, that can tweet more, um, you know, Ben Shapiro quotes or Car- Tucker Carlson quotes than they can verses of Scripture. Now, what does that say? Okay. Nothing wrong with those guys, but we got to get back to our priorities, and so. To the extent that everyone starts to do that more, I think over time we'll see a more uh, convergence of biblical worldview and we'll see less inconsistencies. But I would just affirm it. It is discouraging. 
It's, and it's not just discouraging to believers like this young, like your daughter or son, whichever. It's, it's, it's a problem for unbelievers. I've talked to unbelievers who see what believers are doing and they're saying, if that's what you, you Christians are going to support politically, I don't want to have anything to do with it. So it's just, a, there's a real division now and there's no, uh, I know it sounds like a trite answer to just say get back into the Word, but uh, I really believe if there's going to be an awakening, it's going to have to come through, through the Word of God. So, Did someone else back over here? Um, you, you showed all the people the many deaths, and let's um, associate that with abortion here in America. Where are we standing? And, I, and, and I'm, I'm saying that out of compassion as a church, because what I hear you saying is that we need to get back to the essentials. But how do we make inroads in that? Because just what you said there, uh, we're all struggling with um, those different things that come to us from different angles instead of looking at God's Word. How do we apply that and begin to um, honor God's righteousness and to spur that on with one another? Yeah, I mean, that's... Um You know, the, the, the abortion issue is so intertwined in our culture, right and left, by the way. You know, basically, we've bought into a system that says, here's the platform of this, here's the platform of the right, here's a platform of the left, over here, pro-life, done. So anything that's got that label by it, we think, oh, must be pro-life. Then you start stopping and thinking about it, and you've got to think about, for example, our tax dollars, right? We're paying for abortions. Just pointing that out. Your hard-earned money goes to pay for abortions. Then you think about vaccines, you know, and again, I'm not going to get into a controversial subject, but you do have to acknowledge that there's no doubt, completely admitted, it's on the label that vaccines have aborted fetal tissue in them. Watch the Spirit of the Antichrist series. I think it's number eight on vaccines in which I show that. You know, uh, I've asked my doctor about it. It's right there. It's, no, it's not a fact in dispute. Okay? Um, you know, uh, businesses and products that you use and support, you know, do they support the abortion industry? Uh, so it's one thing to have a stand and then, you know, and then it's another thing to do you, does someone consistently operate on that stand? And I think in the political realm, we've seen, sadly, all too many times where candidates that we passionately supported because we were promised they were pro-life had opportunities, and they didn't, which really begs the question, are they really pro-life? You know? A great book on that subject, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but it was uh, called... We won't be fooled again, and it's a. If anybody's ever read that, it's a very pro profound book. But it's essentially a tell-all book, exposing many of the key evangelical who's who of leaders of the last 20 years, who are out front on political action committees and major Christian organizations, supposedly fighting the battle, and yet behind the scenes they were not really pro-life. So I think we need to do more research. We need to stop listening to 
the sound bites and, and think for ourselves. Obviously, get in the Word. We've said that a lot tonight. But, but actually, you know, do the research. You know, when a, when a, when a justice is nominated, instead of saying because, you know, Sean Hannity says, oh, they're, they're conservative, you can actually go online pretty easily and look at their cases from the last 20 years. You can download PDFs of the decisions they've made and which side they came down on on their appellate court service. And when you do that, you're going, they're labeled this, but I'm kind of seeing something else, you know. And we see that with a lot of them. I won't mention names. I've talked about this previously in other places, but, you know, uh, some of these justices, um, it doesn't surprise me at all where they come down on these issues because, you know, they're, they're, track record is right there for all to see but because they were put forward as the man they were appointed by a Republican they must be pro-life they must be pro uh, one man one woman marriage they must be conservative I mean we got we got to start thinking for ourselves somebody else we got time for a couple more yeah uh, I want to bring up one thing why everybody talks about what they would like God to do. Why don't they talk about what he's doing? That's a good point. Day in and day out. And one of the things, even in this last summer in the riots in Washington, D.C., they set fire to that church that the president went over to see and people got in trouble about. They'd been remodeling that church. That church has been there two, three hundred years. I've seen it. But they set fire to it when they expected it the next day the only thing that burned was the remodeling. All the old wood, the altars and everything is all intact. It was just where they had worked on remodeling was the only thing that burned. Amen. And the other thing is, one of the worst words, I think, in the language is luck. I think it's a swear word. <laughs> I do, because when you say luck, you're taking away God's doing. I agree, yeah. There's some stranger out there someplace when it's God that's working. Just like in this election today, there was a, one of the old Democrats that had, had served 19 terms in Congress got defeated. And some of the people that they figured were going to lose in the Senate and stuff, they were saved. Sure. They got reelected. That's God working in there. Amen. That's a great point. You know, Let's not forget that not only can God bring widespread revival, but the Spirit is alive and well today. God is not through, or we would all be called home at the rapture. Yeah, He's waiting for people to be come to faith. Yeah. So there's a, there are pockets of revival all over this world. Yeah. And we get this narrow view, and that's why I was trying to get us to step back from our myopic view and say, I mean, we focus mostly on the future tonight and the fact that God has a plan. But even now, God hasn't like taken His hands off the wheel and said, que sera, sera. He's very much doing amazing things. So very good point. Yeah, he's in our, but we never talk about it. We can be in this church here, and how many people just walk around and say, you know what God did today? You know what happened to me today? Once in a while you'll hear somebody, boy, was I ever lucky, and I washed <laughs> my mouth out. But that, uh, that's what I mean. We don't, how can you spread evangelism if the stranger's here and you never hear any talk about, oh, you got to come to Christ. Amen. you got to do this instead of saying, do you know what Christ did to me? Do you know what's laying on the bed? Amen. We are, thank you for that good word. We are so lucky to have you here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for that. Praise God. Yeah.
All right, well, it's 8, so I'm afraid we're going to have to cut it off uh, so we can get the kids out of the kids' ministry. Let me pray for us. We'll be glad to uh, carry on the discussion at the resource table. Come by and see us. Take a look at some of these new uh, things that are out there, and, uh, and stay in touch. Sign up for our newsletter. Sign up for our YouTube channel. We want to we wanna kind of stick together in this thing, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Uh, thank you for your word and the encouragement that it provides the timeless truths of it, that even though... It was written 2,000 years ago. It may as well have been written today. Lord, teach us to trust you. Draw us back to you and teach us uh, to be mindful of your presence uh, each day and every, everywhere we go as we see you at work. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Let us thank Dr. Hickson for an amazing uh, sermon today.